Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And I'm Steve Bunch, but please just call me Bunch. And this is Marvel Reboot Club. Okay, so everybody, this is a very special episode of Marvel Reread Club. We are doing just two issues this episode, uh, but they are both bigger issues. They're both annuals from 1964. We're going to be doing Amazing Spider-Man annual number one and Fantastic Four annual number two. And for this monumentous month or year or set of annuals, we have invited on an old editor of mine from my DC Comics days, Steve Bunch, um, who we will refer to as Bunch since I'm Steve and we're both Steve B. And if you called me Bird, then so is Matt. And so just (laughs) Steve, Matt and Bunch. Dude, 99% of the people who know me refer to me only as Bunch. Okay. Like it's Steve is for people who've only just met me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Then we will go with that. So, Bunch, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm just not even going to try to hide it. I'm a lifelong comic book geek. <laughs> Started reading comic books when I was about six years old. I am currently 57 years old. I still read. But my dream as a kid was to break into the comics business initially as an illustrator. But I ended up at Marvel in the bullpen as a production artist, along with the other production artists, we had to, when, whenever possible, imitate the art styles of the people whose pages we were working on before they went to press in case there were, you know, art problems that needed to be addressed. Boy, have I got stories about that, but that's another story. <laughs> I was at Marvel for nine years. Then during the, Mar- the troubles at Marvel with their financial issues, I got let go But due to the comics industry in New York being as incestuous as it is, news of my being let go got out immediately. And while I was packing my stuff to leave, I got a phone call from DC who said, you want the same job here? I'm like, yep, okay. So (laughs) I, I ended up at DC, ended up doing production art there, then found myself as an editor in vertigo which was a whole other story and that's where you and i met yes but other than that basically now i'm a freelance writer and editor for various websites and magazines but that's we're not here to talk about that we're here to geek out (laughs) so let's get to it okay excellent all All right. right yeah i'm all for it so matt why don't you go ahead and get started here all right well so hi bunch it is so wonderful to have you here um it is so cool have someone with your actual experience in the industry doing all kinds of awesome stuff. I love your work. I love the Vertigo books you worked on. I love all sorts of stuff you worked on. It's great to have you here. But let's go ahead and jump in and talk about Amazing Spider-Man. So the first thing, Marvel's thing, and I don't know how long this went on, but their thing with the annuals is that the logo would have multiple colors. They've been doing this on their first two annuals. They've done Fantastic Four annual number one and Strange Tales annual number one. The Amazing Spider-Man number one promises 72 big pages annual now, the Fantastic Four <laughs> promises that as well, but Fantastic Four is being somewhat disingenuous because they have a big old reprint in the middle, but the Spider-Man does not. Steve Dicko, of course, tragically gave up inking Doctor Strange for three issues, obviously, so he could work on this. Always terrible. George Bell inked three issues of Doctor Strange. That is terrible, but if that's the price we had to pay to get this amazing annual, that is fine because Steve Dicko gives us 72 pages of art here. Quick interjection. You know about George Bell, right? You mean just that he's George Russo's? Okay, there you go. 
Yeah, because yeah, George Bell, for those who don't know, is in actuality George Russos, who was a comic book veteran forever. He inked a hell of a lot of stuff. In order to just make ends meet, they would work for other companies as well. But if they were working for one of the big ones as a regular staffer, like at Marvel, they'd have to change their names. So he was working for a bunch of other people as well, hence George Bell. And in yes. case you don't know, he's the guy who inked Fantastic Four number one, even though he's not credited for it. Ah, we had gone back and forth about who inked Fantastic Four number one. He did a fine job with Fantastic Four number it, one. It but uh... yeah, I, I worked I worked with him daily at Marvel until he passed away. Oh, wow. And, and he was a fount of stories, believe me. Huh? <laughs> but sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but just oh, no, George Bell. I was like, gotta gotta say something. No, this that's great. That's a, that's what we have you here for. <laughs> Please, <laughs> by all means. If you could somehow reach out to your old friend and tell him something for me, tell him that I hate his thinking. Because <laughs> uh <laughs> but but you can't. Unfortunately, he has passed away, so it's too late to tell him. Well, let's face it. Also, in in his defense, and speaking as a person who has inked stuff before, inking Steve Ditko is not exactly a job for for your average inker because Ditko had a a style a singular style that literally only he could create. And if you have his pencils and then suddenly someone says, hey, Steve's not going to be inking this issue. We need you to do it. You're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't have his quirky sensibility. Yes, I totally agree. And that showed in George's inking, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought he actually did a better job slightly on Ditko than he did on Kirby. He did a fine Ooh. job on Fantastic Four number one. But when he inked... Fantastic Four, like 21 to 27. I'm not a fan of his thinking on those issues. Well, back to Ditko for a moment. One thing that I wish had happened more, you must have read the issue of Fantastic Four that Ditko inked, right? Yeah. Number 13 with the Red Ghost. Yeah. Yes. That is, in my opinion, until Joe Sinnott showed up, that was the perfect marriage of Kirby and an inker. And it looked beautiful because you know how... The Fantastic Four, along with Challenges of the Unknown, obviously being another one of Kirby's books, that it was kind of a retread of. Right. Yes. If you really think about it. But there's still a lot of the, the 50s monster and sci-fi books in Kirby's stuff, especially, you know, the early Fantastic Four. And when you see issue 13 inked by Ditko, it looks like one of those books. Oh, yeah, it does. Those books, they had a real lush atmosphere to them. And that it just, I wish we could have seen more of that. But, mm -hmm. yeah. but be, the comics being a sausage factory that they, did, they are, you just got to move <laughs> on and just get the, meet those deadlines. So yep. there you go. Yep. No, okay. I agree. That is number 13, Inked by Deco, is a beautiful issue. So let's go ahead and jump into Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, one of the all-time great Marvel comics, I would say, along with Fantastic Four Annual Number 2. These are two of the all-time great Marvel comics, which is why we wanted to give them their own episode today. So we begin with Dr. Octopus is being let out of prison. Now, Steve, you were saying on Facebook that like he's surprisingly ripped. Yeah. Like he's been sort of pudgy. <laughs> Other times we've seen him, but here he is. We see him with his shirt off with his six-pack abs, or at least four-pack abs. The guy, if you really think about it, he's got to be in his 40s or his 50s. And the guy is shredded. I mean, absolutely <laughs> shredded. I mean, just 
if if I were Spider-Man, even with the the guys without the arms, I wouldn't want to deal with it. But his head looks all dumpy. Look, his head looks like a family dollar Roy Orbison. <laughs> family dollar Roy Orbison in a bad Beatles way. <laughs> So we have Todd Cock being let out of prison and they're like, we took your octopus arms away from you. So now you're going to be helpless. And he's like, they don't know. I can control them with my mind. And I didn't realize this happened this early that I know this happens later in like Burns Fantastic Four. You've got a lot of him controlling the arms with his mind. But no, it's pretty awesome sequence where the arms are like locked up in a little locker, but then they burst out and burst him out of jail. We then see Spider-Man stealing a paper from Chase Jonah Jameson so he could read it, reads about Dr. Rock escaping from prison. And then we get something happening that is going to happen for this issue is that while Spider-Man is reading the paper, Thor just suddenly flies by and fails to notice him there and blows right past him. And he's like, oh, there goes Thor, but he's waiting for an Avengers meeting. And then it says underneath, Mighty Thor appears each month in his own magazine, as well as in the Avengers. This is a fun thing they do in this issue. It's, I mean, it's a little like, I don't know whether to be offended that they're using so much real estate to advertise their other books, or if it's just a really neat thing where Ditko gets to draw everybody in the Marvel Universe and it's just, I mean, it's just fun to have everybody blow past Spider-Man as and sort of ignore him and his huge stuff that's going on over the course of this book. Reading it through this time, you really notice that if you pick that issue up as a kid, first of all, you're dealing with the early days of the Marvel Universe as we now know it. Right. Yeah. Okay? So you're getting, with the exception of Sergeant Fury, everybody <laughs> who has existed in the Marvel Universe is in that story. Yes. Okay? Even if it's just a cameo, they're still in there. So if you're a newcomer to Spider-Man, this is the perfect issue to start with because you get literally everything <laughs> you need to know about Spider-Man, Peter Parker's world, his friends, his family, and his main foes. Sure, there were other villains that Spider-Man had fought by this point, but the ones in this issue, they're the A-listers. Yeah. Yeah, you know? absolutely. You have all of that. And and the fact that you get all of that in this one issue, along with every, all these other heroes showing up, you may have gone to McDonald's and ordered a cheeseburger, but what they handed you is a double quarter pounder with cheese <laughs> with a side of chili. I mean, you, you, you get everything plus. And we can't stress you know, enough how expensive these books were. These were more than twice the cost of a normal issue. So if you have never spent more than 12 cents on a comic book before, spending 25 cents on a comic, more than double that cost, is a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask, but the thing is, think about it, it says on the cover, 72 pages? Um, no. Right. About half of that is ads. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's 72 actual physical leaves of paper. Correct. <laughs> Not 72 pages of art, uh, comics, art, and story. But there is an insane amount. But yes, yeah, so that yes. brings us to the next panel where we find out that Dr. Ogg has gathered together Spider-Man's, who he always considers Spider-Man's six biggest foes, his five other biggest foes, which are Sandman, Craven, Mysterio, Electro, and Vulture. Now, Spider-Man is at this point only fought most of these people once. Uh, he's fought the Vulture twice. but he has identified these as Spider-Man's six biggest foes. And so he has brought them all together. We see a brief bit of back at school that Flash wants to fight Peter, but then bizarrely, who takes an interest in breaking up this fight between Flash and Peter, but Dr. Strange, who has nothing better to do than to troll Queens high schools and break up fights 
um, shows up in his astral form and breaks up the fight. Spider-Man's glad because he had saw somebody suspicious walking by and he can follow him, follows him. Now, Spider-Man, generally speaking in these comics, it's always like, I was fighting this person, they disappeared. Can't explain that. It's like Sandman, dude, Sandman. You just... <laughs> You have met Sandman before. You know he was what's going standing on. on a sewer grate when he disappeared. You don't think that maybe Sandman just dropped through the sewer grate? <laughs> but so then Sandman, we get, of course, because it's the sewer. Dicko loves sewers, and sewers love Dicko. And the images of Sandman escaping through the sewer are just gorgeous. We then get a classic. You know, you can't draw a Spider-Man panel without doing at least one panel in which Spider-Man is swinging from a web that can't possibly be attached to anything. So we get him swinging to his little suburban home in Forest Hills on something where he couldn't possibly be swinging on anything. First of all, have either of you been to Forest Hills? I've never been to Forest Hills. No. I lived in New York. I lived in New York off and on for 20 years, but I've never been to Forest Hills. For the most part, Forest Hills is a residential area. There is literally nothing for Peter to swim on there. Right. <laughs> okay. I, I had a girlfriend who lived in Forest Hills, so I used to go there all the time. And when I, whenever I went there, the geek part of my brain would say, Peter's swinging around in this. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But uh, so then Spider-Man sees Aunt May moping about Uncle Ben. He starts moping about Uncle Ben. Somehow he has made it back to the city because he is in a beautiful Dicko cityscape. Re remembers about Uncle Ben starts getting depressed, and then he would think he would make this connection that it's his depression that's causing him to do this, but he doesn't make the connection. He stumbles off the building and falls. Now, Steve, again, you, I saw you on Facebook, you were posting <laughs> these panels, absolutely gorgeous panels of Spider-Man. And, you know, Steve Dicko has to make it clear that this time Spider-Man is hanging on to a flagpole. It's different from other times he's hanging on to a flagpole. And Dicko could not make it clear that now Spider-Man does not have his powers and is desperately clinging for dear life to this flagpole and is terrified of falling to the ground. Look closely at the figure of Spider-Man in those panels. Mm -hmm. Look at the way just, we're so used to seeing him flipping around and <laughs> swinging on stuff. But here he's utterly helpless. And look at the body language on it. It's amazing. You know, it's really amazing. When I was a child, and I would read Ditko comics. I hated Steve Ditko's artwork with a passion. Yep. Same here. I'm the first to admit it. But then when I saw other artists who were influenced by what he did and, and the quirky physicality of, of it all, I started to understand it. And when I saw lesser artists or le lesser visual storytellers, to be specific, mm -hmm. aping the tropes of Ditko, it didn't work. And then I'd look at Ditko and say, well, I get what he's doing here. Why doesn't it work with this other guy trying to ape him? And then I started examining his work and really got into it. And if you look at like this, this section with, with Peter hanging off of the, the flagpole, look at the way he draws the distribution of weight, because usually when Spider-Man is flipping around, He's, you know, defying physics in a million different ways, but he's sprightly. He's he's got a real lightness to the way he moves, even though he's drawn to have a certain muscular density. He's light and moving like that. But when you see him hanging off that flagpole, he might as well be a sack of wet potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is amazing. And Steve, as you pointed out on Facebook, huh. that you don't see the building. You just see the flagpole. Right. He's just way out. He is completely alone 
and frightened in a dangerous location, essentially. Yeah, now I really think that's part of uh, that's where Ditko's storytelling there to make that come across. So the Fantastic Four go by and think he's just goofing around and they don't help him. We get beautiful panels of Spider-Man desperately inching his way back into the building, creeping along the ledge. I love trying that. To, trying to get home, gets home, decides he doesn't have his powers. Meanwhile, the Sinister Six are meeting. This is another thing, see if you were pointing out, that Dr. Octopus says, all right, I'm going to have us all randomly draw from a bowl the order and location where we are going to fight Spider-Man. And then he says, yes, I have left nothing up to chance. And as you pointed out, like, you have nothing up to chance. You left everything up to chance. You draw out of a damn bowl. I know. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I don't know whether to blame Ditko or Lee for that one. Lee had the final say-so on what was being said there, so I guess he's uh, he, he's the one holding the bag on that one. Peter Parker continuing to feel a mopey going around, uh, misses the giant man and wasp are having a fight with somebody, and he can't bother to pay attention. Meanwhile, Aunt May has figured out there's something wrong with Peter. She goes to the Daily Bugle to try to find him, sees Betty Brant leaving, going like, oh, I know you, you're Betty Brant. Um, I guess they, they she basically knows that Peter is that this is Peter's girlfriend at this point, right? I think so. I've got a question about that. Peter, we know, is a high school student. Is yes. he Brant like 22? That, you would assume. You would assume, an, but there, there's apparently there was a whole thing back and forth in the letters column where they where they did some sort of chronological gymnastics to make it that she was actually younger than Peter which makes no sense whatsoever. They, they, they do they do establish that she that, you know, her family's uh, misfortunes meant that she had to drop out of high school and get a job. But oh. um, but yeah, but that being said, the idea that she is younger than Peter here is kind of ridiculous. That does not <laughs> yeah. work at all. <laughs> no. She must have had one hell of a typing class in her high school to get her up to professional secretary level before she is 17. But anyway, so then Electro and Sandman want to kidnap Betty because they know that Spider-Man has fought for Betty in the past. They know he fought for Betty and I think it was issues 11 and 12. And they're like, okay, this is somebody who we're not investigating Spider-Man's secret identity. He could be anybody. But so for some reason, we don't know Spider-Man has been willing to fight for this woman in the past. And then they see her with Aunt May and they're like, well, there's that Frank girl now, but who's that with her? What's the difference? We'll take them both if we have to. So let's go. So this is sort of a cheat issue. We're like, they've taken the two people who are closest to Peter Parker and put him in the maximum emotional stakes. But it would make so much more sense if they knew he was Peter Parker. So they sort of have to greatly sort of twist themselves into connections here to create a situation in which they kidnap these two without knowing he's Peter Parker. But that's where they do it. It works for me in reading it. It's like, oh, she happens to be there. Well, that really sucks because now the stakes are raised even higher. Right. So it, it works. It works. Yeah. I uh, think I, that Lee, I think that Lee pulls it off. I think that Lee in writing that dialogue I just quoted, you know, sort of makes it believable enough that this unfortunate twist of events for Peter would happen. Okay. Yeah. We have yet again, something that's happened many times where somebody comes to JJJ and says, we want you to put in the paper a message to Spider-Man and Peter is there and happens to hear it live in person. And then I guess they don't make it clear here, but I guess once again, he's in a situation where he has to wait until the next edition of the paper is published to hide the fact that he overheard it as Peter. JJJ is like, I've got to get Spider-Man. I'll call up other people. He calls up the Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Four call up the Avengers. Human Torch is flying around writing flaming letters in the sky saying we're looking for Spider-Man. We see the X-Men see it. Now this is a little weird because it says the X-Men are in their danger room and out the window, you can see the human torch writing letters in the sky saying spidey 
something spidey come f4 what's he saying i don't know we can't quite see it all now the danger room has never been portrayed as having a window in the past and or in the future they're in westchester new york the human torch flew all the way up to westchester new york just in case spider-man was up there but uh he that's can a little fly really fast <laughs> right that's true well, i mean if he can swing through forest hills then you know clearly hey, he gets he can swing through Westchester County. So then <laughs> Spider-Man then decides, and this is a nicely heroic moment. He's like, even though I don't have any powers, I'm going to put my costume on anyway and go face Electro, which is, uh, and there's a great panel of Spider-Man having to shimmy under a fence because he can no longer, and he says, before losing my powers, I could have reached the spot with one effortless leap, but now what's in store for me? And you really get a sense of the humility of shimmying under this fence. But then he faces Electro and suddenly his powers come back. So this is... It's, they actually say, they don't say it here, but they say a couple of pages later, they actually use the fancy term psychosomatic. And this is something that would later be used in Amazing Spider-Man 2, directed by Sam Raimi, where he also loses his powers and then realizes there it's psychosomatic. And he realizes it's because he was smoking too much about Uncle Ben. But so then he fights Electro and we get to the first thing that will happen six times this issue. We get to these absolutely gorgeous. Now, both of you are saying you were not big fans of Dicko as a kid. I was pretty much the same way when I was a kid. I was first exposed to Dicko. He did a Hulk annual. He did an Avengers annual. He did, you know, I think the main place I was exposed to Dicko was on ROM. And he was inked by Peter Russell, who's a great inker, but it just didn't work. It, you know, generally speaking, I think all the Dicko I saw as a kid, he was inked by other people. And ultimately, Dicko inked by other people is just not up to snuff. Dicko inked by Dicko is amazing. Did you just mm -hmm. say that he got inked by Craig Russell? Yeah. Yes. On what? On, on ROM? ROM. Okay. I didn't, I never read ROM because by the time ROM came out, I was definitely too old for that. Right. <laughs> we were the right age for ROM. <laughs> well, well I, was, I was too old for that. Plus, I was still in my I don't like Ditko phase. Right. But I can't picture that inking match at all because you know, with Craig is turn him loose. He's unbelievable, but inking Steve did. Yeah, I'm sorry. My <laughs> mind is wobbling as a result of that. Google it. It's uh, it was. It's not terrible. It's not terrible art. And you know, you had two you know all time great artists who were working together, but they just were not producing great art. But I think that I first discovered my love of Dicko when I had a teacher, I had an art teacher who had collected the Lancer paperbacks of the first 20 issues of Spider-Man, where they just published them in pocket paperback form, you know, shrunk right. way down, obviously. But I read those and I'm like, holy hell, this is Steve Dicko. This is amazing. And <laughs> it was the first time I'd seen him himself. And then I went whole hog Dicko and I became a huge fan of Mr. A. Cat Ironwood had reprinted those early Mr. A's, and I have been a huge Dicko fan ever since. But so then this is Dicko inking himself at his best. We get these six beautiful splash pages in this issue, where every time he punches out a member of the Sinister Six, it gets its own splash page. And I think that, you know, one of the most invisible aspects of comic book writing, and of course, it's very tricky to talk about who wrote this book, because it's like, are we going to give credit to Stanley or Steve Dicko? But certainly as an artist, who is laying out the book, and this is true even if you're working with someone who's doing full pot, and even more so if you're doing someone who's using the Marvel method, that it's very tricky to time out the story in such a way 
where you don't have like three panels on a page and then it's time for the splash page. You have to have <laughs> six panels on the page and then it's time for the splash page, which takes up the next page. And so once I became aware of that while reading this issue, I'm like, oh, he had to time things out very carefully here so that the splash page, full page came at the right point in the story. Let me have a probably an unpopular opinion here, which is that personally, when it comes to these splash pages, they seem a little overwrought to me. Like, it's almost like Steve Ditko was like, oh, this is a special one. So I'm going to go ahead and put special attention into this. And it almost makes it less, takes some of the life out of it for me. It feels <laughs> a little mannered uh, in some way. But uh, and I found that on on most of these uh, these big splash pages, which, as I said, that's going to be an unpopular opinion. But that's what we're here for. That's the thing, though. They're meant to be overwrought because and stop and think about this. This was, especially with the annuals, this is when they would give you the pinup pages as ancillary material. And this issue, every time Spidey engages with one of his foes, those could easily be excised from the comic book and just hung on your wall if you were a kid. My question when reading this and seeing all of these was, okay, I know for a fact that there were kids who cut these things out and would put them up on their wall. How many copies of Spider-Man Annual Number <laughs> 1 are there that were totally ruined by kids doing that? Lots. Lots and lots. lots. If I may say, I'm yeah. having a blast doing this. This is fun. Fantastic. Now that we're getting to those pinups, before that, there's that page where the second his powers come back, he's like, I got my powers. And he's he's got the, the classic Spider-Man pose. Mm -hmm. that, and that illustration became iconic and was used a million times for promotional stuff, an illustration to punctuate something on a letters page, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you go back and look at that panel, that really should ah. be mentioned. Right. You know yeah. the one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. The the one, the second panel on page 14. My powers have returned to me. I haven't lost them. I am still Spider-Man. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. I've also seen that run on covers and it would say, yes, starring in this issue, the amazing Spider-Man. So that image is, I hate to use the word because it's so overused and almost meaningless now. It's iconic. It truly is. It is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely. is absolutely gorgeous. And I can understand why they would do that. So, Steve, you are a mm -hmm. physics minor. Yep. Is this how grounding yourself actually works? He Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Uh, this would guarantee that you would get fried. <laughs> that is my understanding. He says that he can defeat Electro because he's grounding himself, which is to say he has tied an electrical cord to his leg as he attacks Electro. And I'm like, isn't that the opposite of grounding yourself? Like, I don't know much about science, but anyway, he somehow <laughs> thinks this is going to protect him. Presumably, if he can get the electricity to just hit that wire and not somehow not come to him, maybe, but I don't really know that's how things work. <laughs> I had that same thought when reading this. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's just going to work against you. <laughs> Then Iron Man stops by, they're fighting in a Stark factory. And so Iron Man's like, oh, what can I do? He's like, get rid of this guy because I just punched him out for you. And now I got to go because the way they have the plot set up, this is, I mean, it's a bizarre plot because oh, yeah. it's all based on this idea that like, look, this is going to fail. Spider-Man is going to beat the crap out of each one of us. And there's nothing we can do about that. So let's just set up how he's going to go from person to person. And everybody is going to have a little card on them for when Spider-Man has punched you unconscious, which could kill you. 
at that point where he has punched you unconscious, where it's just now in real life, when someone punches you unconscious, it's the luck of the draw, whether or not you ever wake up from that. Speaking as a person who has engaged in, in fisticuffs and studied various martial arts over the course of almost 50 years, let me tell you, getting hit in the head and knocked out, not only does it leave a psychological scar think of the physics of being hit in the head oh yeah you know your skull contains a vital organ that is surrounded by a lot of fluid that keeps it you know rather cushioned yet if something hits that think of the kinetic force yeah and what that does it's going to bounce your brain off of the other side of your skull and that's yes. what getting that's what then that's what knocks you out. <laughs> yep. well, I remember when I was a kid and Mike Tyson bit off of Vander Holyfield's ear and everybody's going like, oh, what a what a brutal, senseless act of violence that was. And people are like, what's well, a lot nicer than knocking him out? Like if you're if you're going to treat somebody in a savage way, then biting their ear off is oh, going to do them a lot less damage than punching them out. Yeah, but, uh, I'll take the ear, ear bite over getting knocked out, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> but uh, so then anyway, the Spider-Man picks up a little card off of Electro saying where to go to fight the next guy. This is his first stop on the scavenger hunt. We get to a place where the Marvel heroes have already been a lot so far, which is the 1964 New York World's Fairground, which has become a major location in all Marvel comics. Spider-Man shows up. He's attacked by two leopards. And then Craven is leading the two leopards. And this fight goes a little quicker because right away, Spider-Man's like, I have to instantly take out both leopards and Craven all at once. And we get a spectacular full-page panel of him doing that. He doesn't even manage to punch out Craven. He just grabs the card from him and gets away. And <laughs> just Spider-Man leaves Craven there with his leopards just roaming around the New York State fairgrounds. And I really, <laughs> I really like how Ditko drew the leopards. Uh, yes. I, yeah. yeah, the splash page of Craven with the with the leopards and Spider Man sho- basically shoving the leopards out of the way. <laughs> and you can, you can the way the way Ditko drew it, you can you can almost feel the the expansion of his muscles as he's doing this. You can see a certain amount of leverage against the top leopard and the bottom leopard. He's just shoving it out of the way. Meanwhile, he's avoiding being hit by Craven, though it looks like there's an indication of a slight amount of contact with the, with the, mm-hmm. the if you can see it. But so what? You know, right. <laughs> Spider-Man's an agile some bitch, and so he's going to get out of the way of this. And it's it's just more Ditko excellence. I mean, I yeah. I sit here and look at this in awe. And as a guy who's drawn my entire life, I'm telling you right now, I could not replicate this sense of movement and weight. I'm glad you guys invited me on for this because I have not <laughs> seen this issue in a million years. And when I had actually read it, I realized I'd read it when it was being excerpted in various other places. So this was the my first time actually sitting through and reading the entire thing as it was meant to be seen and it's a tour de force yeah it is it is truly amazing so then (laughs) spider-man quickly runs into the human torch who offers to help and he says forget it i gotta take care of this on my own we get then a recurring bit i didn't mention this before (laughs) when dr ock first met me 
she is just totally charmed by Dr. Octopus. Yes. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> it's a very funny runner. There's just, you know, and again, you don't know whether to give Dick or Lee credit for these things, but it's just a very clever conceit in the issue that obviously Spider-Man is assuming that Aunt May is going through this traumatic thing of having been kidnapped. <laughs> and instead, Aunt May is saying, such a charming gentleman. It's a pleasure to meet someone with such good manners nowadays as he's, you know, using his mechanical arms to offer her cookies and pour her tea. And uh, it's just, it's just a delightful comedic runner. Spider-Man then follows the next card he finds what he looks like now we've already established that the x-men are hanging out in the danger room and they have a big window and then he swings in a window into what looks like the danger room and it's like hey he's meeting, bringing into the danger room but in fact these are robots of the x-men who are being controlled by mysterio spider-man is having none of this he jumps through the glass gorgeous page of him smashing through glass and punching mysterio out we then get to and just the amount of humor that Lee and Dicko effect into this book is just fantastic because we get a very funny bit where <laughs> J. Jonah Jameson is wondering what's going on. And then suddenly a spider lowers itself on its web outside J. Jonah Jameson's window. He's like, he's like, hmm, if Ant-Man can talk to ants, then why shouldn't Spider-Man? I wonder, who are you? Did Spider-Man send you? Don't just hang there. Give me the message. And then everybody's looking at J. Jonah Jameson like, is the old skin flint talking to that spider or am I going nuts? If he is, it's not you who's going nuts. J. Jonah Jameson is shouting at the spider. Come on, I haven't got all day. Where's Spider-Man? And it's just, it's a very funny writer. We then get Spider-Man who lands, sees the next card, and it's like, oh, there's nobody here. There's just some sand on the ground. None of my villains are here. It's like, oh, Spider-Man. <laughs> Turns out the sand is Sandman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we get a what gorgeous a page of Spider-Man punching out Sandman full page. Then suddenly they get caught up in a metal cage so that he can't help but fight Sandman. But Sandman hasn't given himself any way to breathe inside the metal cage and collapses. Oh, well, so much for that. We see, once again, Aunt May continuing to be charmed by Dr. Octopus. We get Spider-Man fighting the Vulture. The vulture insists that he take his web shooters off, which seems like a good idea, but then the vulture ties a lasso around his leg to jerk him around. It's like, well, dude, that's going to work the exact same way that the web shooters do. You <laughs> once again tied yourself to Spider-Man, which is exactly what you didn't want to have happen with the web shooters. So Why that was a pretty smart. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, Spider-Man flips himself around. It's funny. He kind of flips himself around on top of the vulture, and then the vulture is like, that's it. You've defeated me. You're on my back. I'm like, I'm not sure that would be such a total defeat, but somehow he's able to convince Vulture to then go take him back, help him put his web shooters back on and well, get tied up. When Vulture says, you've got to take off your web shooters, he says, or or else I'll just fly off and you won't get your you won't get the next scavenger hunt clue. And, and Spider-Man says, looks like you leave me no choice. And I'm like, you have your web shooters now. Just go ahead. <laughs> like Vulture isn't that far away from you at the moment. Just go ahead and just whip him right now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the plot demands it. Yes. Well, did either of you ever really buy the Vulture as a villain? Because I always felt bad for him because it's like <laughs> Spider-Man's beating up an old man. Yep. Yes. Yeah. But, and, oh, and, and take a look at the flash page. Okay. Look at the Vulture's right foot. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a little weird. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's the kind of thing when I was working in the bullpen, they would have us art correct stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, um, I had not noticed that, but that is really unfortunate. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the Ditkoisms that I never liked as a kid because you'll see that kind of thing a lot, but once you get used to him, you you learn to forgive. But so then Spider-Man gets his final card from the Vulture, goes to a castle, which 
He's like, so this is my final destination, an old castle imported to this country stone by stone. Like, okay, is there a docent who is telling you these things? I, it's unclear <laughs> to me how he, uh, how he knows that. But Well, um, well, well so, you know, the, the cloisters at the north tip of Manhattan war, pretty much was brought in stone by stone from Europe, uh, from multiple different castles that they just sort of put together into the museum. To protect it from World War II, and then they're like, yeah, you're not going to back afterwards. So then... <laughs> So then he, Dr. Octopus is here. Dr. Octopus uh, says like, oh, here I am being all defenseless Spider-Man. And because he knows Spider-Man doesn't know that he has the ability to sneak up behind him with his mentally controlled arms. But then Dr. Octopus would probably be all right if he just kept staying well away from Spider-Man and beating him up with his arms from afar, but he can't resist using a clever death trap he has somehow installed in this castle. I don't know if this was already in the castle when he arrived or if he somehow had this <laughs> built the specifications, but a huge glass tank uh, to drop Spider-Man in because he's like, I want to finally fight you in the way a real octopus fights. I want to have a real duck octopus fight. And I'm going to go ahead and put on scuba gear and climb into this tank with you and fight you with my eight arms, uh, which he does. There's a big single page with this. Spider-Man finally defeats him by releasing all of his web fluid at once so that it tangles up the arms. We never actually see him punch out Dr. Octopus, but I guess Dr. Octopus then almost drowns and has to be pulled out to save his life. It's a little unclear. And Spider-Man finally rescues Betty Brant and Aunt May. And Aunt May, of course, now is like, so that's Spider-Man. What a perfectly ghastly outfit. He's so villainous looking, not at all as pleasant as that well-mannered Dr. Octopus. I'm sure Dr. Octopus would never have entered that way without knocking. And uh, so then <laughs> Spider-Man is amused. He tells them that the police are coming to save them. He then has to quickly swing all the way home to be there waiting when they arrive and is shocked he's convinced that Aunt May must be traumatized and must just not be showing it yet and then finally she starts screaming from the other room and it's like oh the post-traumatic stress disorder is finally hitting her and he rushes in he and betty rush in to help her and she says do you realize we miss the beverly hillbillies i forgot all about them and i've been waiting all week and betty says you mean that's what upset you and spider-man says no something Aunt May. in case i forgot to tell you you're the ever-loving greatest. So this famously is a panel that when they reprinted this comic in Marvel Tales in the 1980s, and I don't know if you were there yet, Bunch, but they, oh, they, they, would, they would just occasionally, when they reprinted old Marvel comics, make very half-hearted attempts to update them. And they updated this panel and they said, okay, it's like 1982. What is the modern equivalent of the Beverly Hillbillies? And they changed it to the Dukes of Hazard. I remember. <laughs> and it, and I, when I was a little kid, I had a friend whose brother was, now we would say he was on the spectrum. And one of the things that he was absolutely obsessed with was Marvel Comics. He collected every Marvel comic that came out, didn't matter what it was, romance or whatever, he bought them all and he had a complete run, double copies and sometimes triple or quadruple copies of everything that Marvel put out every month, starting with 1962. Wow. So I got to read a lot of this stuff in its unedited form. And then when I saw it years later in those reprints, it was like, wait, what? <laughs> the Dukes of Hazard? Right. <laughs> Does Aunt May have a time machine? Right. But so then she is upset that she missed either the Beverly Hillbillies or Dukes of Hazard, depending on which version of this comic you're reading. She is unhappy with her nephew Peter Parker for using so much slang terms. He thinks that is just adorable. Um, we see 
Human Torch stopped by Chase Jameson, who's back to being upset. We see Spider-Man just standing and gloating while his six villains are all being held in a cell. They have at least taken away the vulture's wings this time. And first time we saw him sent to a jail, he still had his wings in jail. But uh, and they've taken away Mysterio's little fishbowl and Dr. Octopus's arms, but we know he has it's hard to separate him out from those. I gotta say, one thing about this issue is Dicko is killing it. It's obviously Dicko's show. It's Dicko doing the bulk of the amazing work here, but there's a tremendous amount of dialogue in this issue because there's frequently panels in which you have the whole Sinister Six and they're all talking. The amount of characterization involved, like if you go back to page eight, the amount of characterization involved in having these eight different, you know, all not that distinct personalities because they all are defined by their desire to kill Spider-Man, but nevertheless, distinct personalities and distinct voices, the number of distinct voices in this issue, you know, because we have almost every Marvel character stop by. It's really amazing that, that Stanley is doing amazing work in this issue. Yes. Um, and but I will point out that, yes, they did take away Stereo's plastic dome and the uh, vulture's wings and octopus's arms. But how have they stopped Sandman from just slithering out of there? <laughs> <laughs> they haven't <laughs> all right so not much um, you can do about sandman no not that much so let's just quickly go through the rest of the issues we then get a gallery of spider-man's most famous foes so this is the first spider-man annuals we've got a lot of foes to get caught up on and they show us everyone starting with the burglar from amazing fantasy number 15 and gives us pictures of the foes and it's amazing that almost all of these it's not just the foe against a white background, which would have been so easy to do, but they are, they're actually in rooms. They've got whole rooms that they're interacting with, which is just not necessary, Steve Dicko. Like, come <laughs> on, man. Like, give yourself a break. Just show well, people against a white background. He's clearly approaching this from the, the, the mindset of, okay, we've only got one page. Let's do this like it was going to be the cover of an issue of Strange Tales or monsters walk among us or whatever and that's what you've got here and like look at the look at the one of the um the burglar that's straight out of like a crime or horror comic it is it with really the, complete is. with the rats in the foreground rats in the foreground, <laughs> and just look at the coloring i mean it's it's phenomenal even the one of the chameleon where he's all he's doing is just standing there it's a striking image because you've got a certain sense of visual depth there yep. is a foreground and a background and a middle ground in these, <laughs> in these pieces of art how which you make, he did not have to do and how do you make the terrible tinkerer visually interesting you're looking at it <laughs> yeah, it is gorgeous. So then we go through all of his villains one by one. Some of them don't have backgrounds, but most of them do. Then we have The Secrets of Spider-Man, where they show us a little bit about his origin, a little bit about how his powers work. Another gorgeous page on page five of this story where it says, start here for Spidey's living action demonstration. And it shows him flipping all around the page. And we get none other than 12 images of Spider-Man on the same page. If I could um, own any one original Spider-Man page by Ditko, that's the one I would want. Oh, sure. That would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Probably just got thrown out in the middle of the night. Or, uh, uh, no, actually, the crazy thing is a lot of that stuff didn't get thrown out. A lot of it did get stolen. I want to say this was three or four years ago. There was an exhibit at the Society of Illustrators that I went to where it was a party honoring spider-man and john ramita and so all of us lunatics went to went to that and the guy who was throwing it i don't know where he got these but he had a collection of original spider-man pages 
Ditko, you name it. I don't know where he got them, but he he's, you know, the, the, the of course, you know it, the famous sequence where Spider-Man's trapped under the machinery and he has sure. to lift it. In his oh, yeah. He had those original pages. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, and where does he get those? He did not know Ditko, none of that. These pages, they're out there somewhere. Yeah. Eyes open collectors. Yeah. 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 So on page seven of this feature, there's something just to annoy Steve. There's a commemoration <laughs> of all the times that Spider-Man has used his webs to make little sculptures that helped him in various ways, like making a raft, which always Steve always complains about on this podcast that he never believes it. We get a fantastic little panel on page eight of the story where it says, and now for the benefit of many interested fans who have asked why we show old Webhead with those radiating lines around him so often, or with this half Peter Parker, half Spider-Man face, we do it merely to hide the drama. Note how much less interesting it would look without those effects. And it shows them without the effects and says, Stan and Steve take dramatic license by showing effects such as those depicted above. Naturally, we do not mean to imply that other characters in the story see them any more than we imply that other characters see the thumb balloons which appear over other people's heads. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you gotta love that. And it's, I, I will never forget going to a New York Comic Con where a guy who used to work at one of the new one of the Manhattan comic book shops showed up as the Ditko Peter Parker complete with you know the sleeveless sweater the whole outfit but the left side of his face was the Spider-Man mask and he had like made out of foam core the Spidey sense tingling <laughs> oh that's great we then get an absolutely fascinating way to wrap up this issue. We get a whole story called How Stanley and Steve Ditko Create Spider-Man. And we see Stan at his typewriter with all of his characters. We see Steve in his studio with just Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. Spider-Man is being drawn by actual spiders who seem to work for Steve Ditko. We then see, of course, the big contentious issue with, especially with Kirby, but also with Ditko, is we see the whole thing beginning with Stanley sitting up Walter Bright in bed with a idea which of course then later Steve Dicko would claim, no, 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 the idea started with me. But we see Stan sit up, but then it's made very clear that he is relying on Dicko a lot to do the Marvel method. We have a little bit that looks like the Marvel method. And we see, interestingly, a lot of tension between Stan and Steve. Yes. And Stan says, Patui, it looks like you learned to draw with your eyes shut. And Steve says, you should talk after that corny script you wrote. And Stan says, what do you mean corny? I copied it from one of the best classics I could find. And my, they keep going back and forth. And of course, Stanley is presumably scripting these pages. Either Steve Deco is just penciling them or he is writing them. It is fascinating to see this thing. And of course, they will continue to become more and more at odds until eventually Steve forces Stan off of the plotting of the book, or one could argue that he just forces Stan to admit he hasn't been plotting the book. And then eventually Steve Dicko will leave. But that's this is still a long way away. Steve Dicko is still going to do another annual the next year. They still have, what, another good 20 issues left of the book together. Yeah, Roughly, yeah. And things are going south here. And they are talking about it. They are joking about it. And it ends with him saying, naturally, dear friends, we're only kidding. Wait till next, quote, annual time, unquote. And we'll probably have Spidey tell how he created Stan and Steve. So that is the end of this 72-page issue. And it is a doozy. What did you guys think of this final Stan and Steve story? Well, um, from the perspective of an insider, 
it just made me sad to read it. Yeah. It really did. And during my time in the bullpen, we're talking, I was there from 1990 through just before the start of 1999. And I forget what year it was, but Steve Ditko came up there once. And we all, the whole bullpen, we couldn't wait to meet him. And the sad part is, and the same thing happened with Kirby when I met him at a convention. Ditko just being there, first of all, was a rarity because he had such hatred for Marvel at the time. And I don't know what he was doing there. But when I asked him, it's like, so what's it like to have created so much of this? And he just looks at me and just had this look on his face like the world was about to end. Yeah. And he, he said something to the effect of just... I don't, I don't really trust much anymore and left it at that. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. But if I may quote, and I have a, a, a quote here and unfortunately I will not give the name of the person who said it, <laughs> but when I talked to him and this is a certain comics old timer. Okay. Let's put it this way. A certain comics old timer who is, as connected to Spider-Man as Steve Ditko. Think about it for a moment. <laughs> okay, I have my guesses. <laughs> as and, do uh, I. And I, I asked him, hey, uh, so what's the deal with Steve Ditko and Spider-Man? And, you know, the way he he's more or less being kind of glossed over by the company. And this comics professional looked at me and said, well, Steve was work for hire. He knew what he was getting involved in. So that's it. He did the work. He got paid for it. The end. Yeah. Right. And, and this is a guy, this is coming from a guy who is a legend in the business. So he's not going to sit there and give you a load of BS. Right. And he said the same thing about Kirby. Mm. And, and technically speaking, the stuff that he, this, my, my source did, his stuff was work for hire but his work was of such a, a pristine quality that his work would often be used for advertising or whatever. And so they'd bring him in to do that stuff. And eventually he ended up having an office in the bullpen. Right. You know, so they could tap him for whatever piece of art the suits needed at any given time. So there was, you know, the work for hire situation was enough to sour anybody and especially with Ditko for so many years being denied the credit that was due, that's got to, mm. that's got to eat away at a man's soul. And especially considering what a cash cow Spider-Man is, you know, Ditko's his own views on things, you know, all that Ayn Rand crap, mm -hmm. whatever. If you're going to be, if you if they're going to be making money off of your creation, you should get some of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you get a lot of it, but, that did not happen. And uh, so one thing that I've heard recently, actually, somebody mentioned it. And then I went back to my um, strange, uh, what a strange and stranger, the worlds of Steve Ditko book. And that was apparently the source for this information is that Stan Lee introduced Steve Ditko to Ayn Rand in the early 60s. What? I didn't yes. know that. The, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. According, according to that book, Stan Lee just liked the 
over-the-top, bombastic, romantic kind of uh, writing style. But then he turned Steve Ditko onto it, and Ditko got really way too deep into the philosophy. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, he did. Yeah. I, yeah. Was, I, I was able to make it through about 30 pages of one of her books, and I was like, That's it. I'm done. <laughs> I've never attempted I, it. One of these days, I might listen to an audiobook. Who knows? I read all of The Fountainhead in high school, and I recommend that novel. It is it is a fascinating novel, and uh, see if you can keep it from turning you. Hopefully, but uh, it is uh, <laughs> it is worth reading. But I never I never dared tackle Atlas Shrugged, which is like twice as long. But yes. that's, so that's the one that I bailed on. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that you talk about how Dicko was in this bind because of these contracts he had signed and how he couldn't break them. But Kirby then went back and said, I am suing. I am suing to establish my rights for these characters. And Kirby always wanted Dicko to join him in the lawsuit. And Dicko never would because Dicko was like, no, I signed a contract, a contract's a contract. You know, Ayn Rand says that, you know, that yeah. <laughs> you have to uh, you have to stick by your contracts. And he said them owning these characters was established from the beginning that I'm not going to, you know, it would be wrong of me to try to go back and renegotiate that contract now. Yeah, because companies never go back and renegotiate contracts. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's what, I mean, you know, I always felt like that's one reason Bob Kane gets a lot of hate, justifiably in a lot of ways. And he was definitely a swiper and he definitely did a lot of things that are considered to break comics codes of ethics in various ways. But I was kind of one of the main reasons people hate Bob Kane is that Bob Kane played the system correctly in a way that other people didn't. And he was like, I want to go back and renegotiate this contract. I want to get creator credit. And I can because I was not 18 when I signed the contract. And I can go back and say, you had me illegally sign a contract when I was not 18, meaning that I did not sign away rights to Batman, meaning that I can now sue you to get the rights to Batman back. And they, he had them over a barrel and he forced them to go and give him to be the only creator at Marvel or DC to really get the full creator rights, even though it should have been co-creator rights with Bill Finger, as was later established. But he was the only person who was able to sue and get a lot of the rights that everybody else should have gotten. And I always thought that that's some of the hate he gets is undeserved because he managed to succeed where everyone else had failed. I, I had never heard that story before. No, that's that's absolutely true. But the thing is, with with Bob Kane and having discussed Bob Kane with various old school professionals, the main reason people hated Bob Kane was because he was a douchebag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and there's there's no two ways about it. And it's like you can say what you want about his his place in comic book history, but it is also he he was a legendary asshole as a human being well, just I, take that for what it's worth and that's coming from someone who knows people who knew the guy yes so we are now going to move on to fantastic four annual number two the all dr doom annual here so we've got two stories featuring dr doom matt points out that there is a reprint of dr doom's first appearance in the middle of the issue that did not end up getting put into the marvel unlimited copy and we already discussed it many episodes ago so i was planning on not necessarily talking about that but if you two want to overrule me we can no 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 no. we've got plenty to talk about <laughs> although i love any opportunity to talk about dr doom's shark copter but you know <laughs> oh and uh let me go ahead and give a uh uh, caveat at the beginning of all of this there is a lot of reference to gypsies in this story 
I personally yeah, happen. I'm, I'm going to touch on that. Okay. Well, I, I, I was just going to say, I personally have a friend who is Romani, who is of Romani descent. And um, I actually had a conversation with her earlier this week about, hey, we're going to be talking about this. Let me just sort of get some, talk to you about some of these things and what terms, you know, this, that, and the other. And so generally my understanding is that many Romani will self-identify as gypsy, but even those who do generally tend to have a bit of an ominous feeling when a non-Roma uses the term gypsies, that it just tends to have a, a an ominous whiff to it, according to her. Well, yeah. believe me, when, when rereading this, I thought about all of that. And speaking as, and for those of you out there who have never met me and have never seen me, my voice does not give away the fact that I'm a, a big black dude. Okay, <laughs> So I'm sensitive to this kind of stuff. And yeah, so we will, we will refer to quote unquote gypsies as Romani from from this point on, even though the story itself does not. So we got that. That okay. is over. Don't worry about it, folks. The PC police, if you're out there, we got you. <laughs> now, I didn't know whether to mention Bunch that I'm like, should we tell the people at home that Bunch is black? Maybe that'll give us a little racism pass here. I don't know. <laughs> well, well in, in today's episode, uh, Dr. Doom goes back in time and meets with Tom Sawyer and <clears throat> Jim. <laughs> okay, we're gonna exactly. leave that right. But anyway, let's get into the meat of this. Okay, let's start with the cover. Okay. As was mentioned before, we have that weird thing that they do with the logo where it's all different colors and it looks like crap, quite frankly. Yeah, it does. But the cover itself is great. You got this gigantic figure of Dr. Doom fighting the Fantastic Four. Reed is, of course, doing his human pretzel thing. It looks great. So let's just skip straight to this first story, the fantastic origin of Dr. Doom. And if I may say so, that is a title that does not lie, simply because <laughs> this was the first time we got any real inkling of what Dr. Doom's backstory is. And he's been there as a, as a, a main antagonist for a while, but not really much depth to him other than, you know, some mustache twirling and, you know, looking like a weirdo and like a, a knight in a, in a dress. We open with Dr. Doom in his castle, sitting on a throne, just brooding as always. And he, he asks, who dares to enter the chamber of Dr. Doom? It is I, Boris. The time has come, master. So we're talking, we're in universal horror movie territory here. If you've ever seen the original, The Wolfman, Think about yes. that, and that's the kind of environment we're in at the moment. Just gorgeous panel on page two of them on top of a windswept hill, as Dr. Doom says, this is the place it was here that it all began. And just the feeling of windswept-ness, <laughs> the feeling of wind blowing through the grass on this hill is just gorgeous. And, and as, in terms of Latveria's location, here on this page, they do refer to it being in the heart of the Bavarian Alps. But then on another page, they talk about him being in the Balkans. But it is unclear to me whether he is actually in or around Latveria at that point or whether he was going doing his con job elsewhere. But I just want to go ahead and bring that up. So if you either of you, as we hit those those points, have some opinions on that, uh, I'll be asking for those. But let's go ahead and just get back to it. And one other thing, while we're talking about the Balkans and Latveria and all that, many years after this story was written, because I don't know about you guys, but when I read these stories in my head, the characters each have a distinct voice and an <laughs> accent or whatever. And Dr. Doom, once I read this story as a kid, I was like, okay, so he's going to have some kind of, you know, European accent. And 
John Byrne actually clarified that during his famous run on the FF, where he had Ben Grimm note that Dr. Doom sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> nice. So yeah. think about this when you, whenever you hear Doom pronouncing how big he is, or he mentions you are the stupidest man I've ever seen. How can you stand to be you, you pleasant bastard? <laughs> you know, so that's, that's what I hear whenever I read Dr. Doom. So I'm not going to do a Dr. Doom impression through this. So don't worry about that. <laughs> but anyway, suddenly we get swept back into Dr. Doom's memories of his youth as a Romani, you know, traveling around with, you know, the carriages and all this straight out of the Wolfman. I kid you not. It is. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I, I went and did some Googling and you know, some Wikipedia looking at, you know, what a, I believe they're called Vardos, um, look like, uh, you know, they're, they're caravan vehicles here. And this doesn't, I mean, to an outsider, this looks like Kirby may have done some of his research here. No, he definitely did his research for that. And, and also look at the clothing on the Romani. This is not something he's just making up out of the top of his head. Right. The amount of character and just, this is just a really heartbreaking story. And this just feels this, I mean, this is in some ways, one of the best Marvel comics we've read so far, this this story of Dr. Doom and the fact that Dr. Doom, who has been, you know, a great villain, but a very one dimensional villain and a villain with no backstory and nothing that really makes sense and seemingly nothing to do all day, but try to kill Reed Richards is he's had no kingdom. I mean, we saw him living in a castle that is seeming it was never clear where the castle was. It later seemed like the castle was in upstate New York. That, <laughs> where he seemed to be the only person in this castle, where he just, you know, with no staff, runs his own castle in upstate New York. That's the only place we've seen him live. And then suddenly we find out that he has this whole kingdom in Europe, and this is all completely new. And then, so we get hit with that. It's like, whoa, but then suddenly we get this backstory, and the backstory, genuinely heartbreaking. It's a really sad backstory that is better than we've seen any heroes get so far. This is, this is the best origin story, I would say, I mean, I don't know. Spider-Man's origin story is hard to beat, but this is maybe after Spider-Man, I would say the second best origin story we've gotten in the Marvel Universe. Well, don't forget, you know, even though he's a villain to the Fantastic Four, Doom in his own head, he's a hero. Oh, yeah. Yes. And this story is very much a hero's origin. Yes, it's it very, is. So we get, we get to see young Victor Von Doom, you know, as a child, as his father is, is, is working, healing various people, he gets taken away to heal the wife of, was, is it a wife? The local yeah, his, baron. His yeah, baron, the wife of the baron. Wife. And of course, the baron, in typical fashion for these stories, is a scumbag. When she dies, because, you know, you can't conquer death, he sends his men to destroy Victor's people and, you know, and his father specifically. So... Victor and his dad go on the run, blah, blah, blah. It's all miserable, terrible. And his father dies and he gets left uh, his father's remedies and things like that. All these heirlooms and a chest that belonged to his mother in which Victor finds out from all the artifacts that guess what? His mother was a witch. So of course we see Victor grow up and he's, you know, incredibly smart, comes up with these technological devices that are basically you wouldn't expect to have going on with the Romani, but that's another story. <laughs> he goes around conning various people and basically just proving that even though he's a genius, he's a genius as asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a con man. 
yes. So this goes on for a while, and eventually he gets his his skills get noted by an American who offers him a full scholarship to an American scientific college. So he takes it, goes there, and of course there he meets the young Reed Richards, who will be, aka Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four, who will become his arch nemesis. They immediately dislike each other and Doom moves out of the room, at which point Reed gets to meet the young Ben Grimm, aka the thing of the Fantastic Four, and thus has forged a lifelong friendship, while at the same time a lifelong animosity grows as Dr. Doom, or before he, this is before he was Dr. Doom, he ends up doing all these wacky, crazy experiments, and Reed Richards sees his notes and tells him that some of the calculations are off. Of course, Doom being Doom, Doom does not make mistakes. So he goes and sticks his head in a machine that basically almost blows his head off. And as a result of this, he just gets more and more bitter and evil, gets kicked out of the college, goes wandering, ends up in the remote areas where he seeks forbidden secrets of black magic and sorcery. And this looks like one of the areas where Doctor Strange would have been hanging out. They do specifically say this is in Tibet, which is Stanley's go-to for black magic and hidden secrets and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, so, and it's there that Doom has his armor forged and his mask, which is, he's so impatient to have this complete armored look. He doesn't even wait for the mask to cool as it comes out of, you know, whatever smelting portion it was in. And he put, just puts it on his face and adjusts his collar. And no, Dr. Doom is born wiser, now, stronger, more brilliant, more powerful than ever before. From this moment on, I shall be known as Dr. Doom. And you, and, and you buy it. You totally yeah. oh, buy it. Oh, you totally buy it. Now, it's interesting that when John Byrne later retold this whole story later, and he went into great detail retelling this whole story, but he actually shows us a moment that is not in the story, which is he shows us what Dr. Doom sees in the mirror after his accident. And his face doesn't look that bad. It shows him with just a big scar on one cheek, but then it implies that his face really got messed up when he put the hot mask on his face. Right. And I don't know if that was necessary for, I feel like Byrne just needed, Byrne clearly loves this story and had read it over and over again, but he decided to clarify that like, oh no, no, he was vain enough that he was very upset to have his face be scarred by the first thing, but it, he would have been okay, but oh, then he put the hot mask on it and now his face is really messed up. Well, the beauty of this is once he gets into the, the full outfit, he just takes off, just flies away. And from that point on, he launches into a career of being the ultimate criminal genius. And we see this proclaimed on newspapers. And then we get a shot of Dr. Doom just strolling down the street in Latveria and everybody's wishing him a good day. It looks like things aren't so bad until you get to a little boy who points out, mommy, look, isn't that, hush dear, you must be silent when the master passes. This comes across to me as his people don't hate him, but they fear him. They fear him and love him. At the same time, exactly. which which if you ask me, that's almost worse than if they hated him, because it's like living with an abusive parent. Sure. It is. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I mean, different writers over the years and I say different writers, but even the same writer, you just get a lot of schizophrenia in terms of how the people of Latveria feel about 
Doom, that it will go back and forth, even with the same writers of going like, okay, here's the storyline that makes it clear. They desperately want a revolution. They're desperate to overthrow Doom. They hate his guts and they, they want him out and they just live in terror of being killed by him. And then there'll be storylines where it's like, no, they love him. I get the feeling it's sort of like a Putin type thing where like, you know, how popular is Putin in Russia? It's like, well, they know they'll be killed if they oppose him, but then, you know, <laughs> they like him surprisingly well, given all that. We're eventually going to have a big storyline in Fantastic Four around issue 70 or so, where they're going to go to Latveria and the people there pretty clearly hate them. So that was, you know, Kirby and Lee doing a story oh, where wait, he's pretty much hated there. I was thinking of the ones much later with Zorba. Yes. And then eventually Mark Wolfman will be the first writer to actually go like, uh, okay, if the Fantastic Four are the heroes, shouldn't they overthrow Doom and actually put a people's regime in power in Latveria, which they finally do around issue 200 when Mark Wolfman is writing the book. And then John Byrne comes on the book and he is having none of that. And John Byrne is like, no, the people then hate Zorba and they overthrow him and reinstall Doom and they're all happier. It's like, okay, well, this is definitely seeming to contradict the Lee Kirby storyline where they seemed pretty desperate to overthrow Doom. But I guess that's also pretty realistic. You often will have cases where the people will rise up and overthrow a dictator and then suddenly half the people there are like, let's reinstall the dictator. <laughs> well, that was the, that was the most powerful moment in Burns' correction of that story. Doom returns to Latveria. The Fantastic Four are with him, and they can't believe what they see because Zora has turned Latveria into this horrifying place to be. And meanwhile, some young peasant woman sees Doom and runs up. It's like, Master, oh, thank God, Master, you've returned. And one of Zorba's men shoots and kills her right there. Yeah. Yeah. If, so if I, I remember correctly. So I know we need to get back to the story here, but I do have one question I want to ask the two of you here. So um, in terms of the chronology, the way I read this, the first time I read through this story is, okay, so we saw he was born this uh, this young Romani man. He, you know, got his scientific knowledge. He went to college. He then left and went to get his, uh, you know, forbidden knowledge and stuff like that and his armor. And then we have all these headlines saying Dr. Doom issues ultimatum to Europe. Dr. Doom, evil genius, creates new weapon. Uh, and by the way, one of them, they were the one in front, the news record. Uh, our local Greensboro, North Carolina newspaper is called the News and Record. So I'm just going to say that's the great that's the Greensboro paper. Um, and then we see him ruling Latveria. We should say that one of the headlines is Fantastic Four in new battle with Dr. Doom. So it shows him flying away from Tibet and then a headline saying he's fighting the Fantastic Four and then him ruling Latveria. So I assume where you're going with this is the big question is, when did he take from Latveria? Exactly. Is it since? Is it since the last time he fought the Fantastic Four, or has he been ruling Latveria and just never mentioned it for the entire 31 issues of Fantastic Four that we have read so far? And this is the huge unanswered question, this issue of when did he conquer Latveria? Has he been ruling Latveria this whole time? Yeah. Well, when I read, when I first read this story, you know, finding out that he was the ruler of Latveria, in my head, I just said, okay, so, this guy is a ruler of a nation and he's been taking time off just to mess with the FF. That's insane. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So let's, let's get back into it here then. Okay. So anyway, Dr. Doom strolls down the street 
and we've now his origin is complete. So next we move on to the ancillary materials, which are pinups as usual. Unlike the Steve Ditko ones, there's no background, so it's just him standing there, like yeah, whatever. And now we get to the second story. And here's where I wanted to uh, to ask you something. So we have the credits here. And uh, in this one, the letterer is treated with respect. But if you go back to the previous story in this issue, he definitely was not. And the letterers often are not in these silly credits that they give. So in the previous one, The Origin of Doctor Doom, it said, Earth-shaking script by Stan Lee, breathtaking illustration by Jack Kirby, epic-making delineation by Chick Stone, and no faking lettering by S. Rosen. And so Matt and I have been debating on whether this is Stan just humiliating his letterers or whether, you know, since the letterers are obviously the ones who have to put it on the page, if they're sort of, you know, either writing those themselves or at least in on the joke. What, what's your thought? It's a case of both in that Stan, you know what his sense of humor is like, and he would come up with these either wacky nicknames or strange descriptors for various people. And I'm sure that he wrote them out. And then if, if somebody objected, something would be done about it. So I think, I think Rosen was in on it. All right. And, and here's one little, one little thing. When I started in the bullpen, Sam Rosen was still lettering. Wow. All right. And the letterers up there never called him Sam. They referred to him as Jurassic Rosen. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, long story short, we're back with the final victory of Dr. Doom opening with the Fantastic Four in the Fantastic Car, which is out of control due to Ben having forgotten to rebore the jet exhaust. So they, the, the FF has to frantically figure out where they can not crash land, but safely land the Fantastic Car away from home. So they land in the middle of traffic on what appears to be either a New York street or a near highway. And the thing gets accidentally sets the car down and wrecks a guy's car, which is an antique car. So there's some back and forth between Ben and the old man. Turns out some rando happens to walk by who's a rich man who pays for the car and then pays Ben to crush the car into a strange shape, which the old man will, whether the, the rando will now sell as an art piece of pop art, but forget about that. It's just silliness. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating because Marvel is about to start putting on the covers of their books, pop art, and True. which they'll do for a while. And I think that, you know, you had this case where suddenly pop art was really big and you had Roy Lichtenstein with all of these redrawn comic book panels who were selling them for, I don't know if it was millions of dollars. Eventually they would sell for millions of dollars, selling them for quite a bit of money at the time. And you had all these people who had actually drawn these panels who were making nothing. And they were like, uh, pop art is just our art that's being recontextualized in a different setting and suddenly being worth a lot more than we ever got paid for it. And then I think that was why Stan would eventually start putting like pop art on the cover going like, hey, you like comic book panels. You're willing to spend all this money on them. Uh, we've got some comic book panels for you. Here is the actual pop art before it gets put in a museum. Why can't you appreciate it now and maybe give us some of that money now? And so you but get you this have, first. You absolutely, have, you absolutely have a point. And whenever I gloss over something, interject that kind of thing. You're absolutely right. And right. I think this is the first time we've seen them explicitly mention pop art in a comic. And I think they're sort of, you get sort of a little bit of this, uh, a little bit of this tension, a little bit of this frustration. 
it's it's definitely an f you to pop art <laughs> yes <laughs> no two no two ways about it on the next page we see dr doom floating through deep space after the last time he got his toughest kick he gets pulled in by a strange spacecraft and of course the strange spacecraft belongs to none other than rama tut the pharaoh from the future so should i bother outlining what rama tut is so I'll just jump in quickly here and say, you know, so we got this whole thing of, you know, last we saw Ramatad, he was, he had come from the future, he'd gone back to Egypt, he'd ruled in Egypt, and then he left. And then at this point, we've already met, you know, it's unclear what order these books came out in, in when the way we read them, we've already covered Avengers number eight, where he shows up as King, but that had a reference this issue, which had not come out yet, according to our reckoning, but well, according to oh, your I, reckoning on, on on Marvel Unlimited, they show them coming out the same the same date, actually. OK, but uh, so then but so I've got to say, I just want to say that then later, as Kang would have lots of flashbacks, we would see this moment flashback to several times. But one of my all time favorite Marvel panels is from an Avengers issue in the 1980s. I think I want to say it was like Avengers 267 or something, but it was a Roger Stern issue with John Bichama, Tom Palmer are flashing back to the events of this issue, but they show something extra. They show like, oh yes, I left the Fantastic Four and it shows the events of Fantastic Four number 19. And then I ran into Dr. Doom uh, when I was on my ship and it shows him very quickly running to the bathroom to shave off his goatee. And <laughs> John Buscema was like, I don't know if that was Roger Stern or John Buscema going like, clearly it had always bugged one or the other that we saw when we saw him leaving Fantastic Four, he had a goatee. And we, when we see him show up here uh, running into Dr. Doom, he does not. And it showed him with a little straight razor over a little sink in his ship um, shaving the goatee off. And that is one of my all-time favorite panels. But anyway, yes. And, and, and so meanwhile, that, yeah. while we're on this page, I just want to point out that um, the exchange they have at the bottom, which is one that future writers just have to sort of reference and it makes no sense. And they're like, uh, okay, so this happened and yeah, it makes no sense, but let's just move on. But I have to say that, that this exchange between Doom and Rama Tut here, um, how are they not just titanically high <laughs> in this scene? You know, because because we find out that, you know, well, uh, uh, if I can just jump in here for a second, uh, that, you know, Rama Tut is, uh, you know, he has his time machine, but then he learns that it had been made by his, it had been invented by his, his ancestor, Victor Von Doom. And then so they're like, oh, so we're descendants of each other. And then they're like, wait, it you know, uh, let's see, it was I who built the time travel machine. What if I'm not your ancestor? What if I myself went to the future? What if you or me? What if Rama Tut and Dr. Doom are the same, man? <laughs> Dude, what if, what, if dog, what if dog spelled backwards spelled cat? <laughs> exactly. So anyway, that this scene only makes sense to me if they have just smoked way too much weed. <laughs> uh, speaking speaking as a person who smoked way too much weed last night and made, and made the mistake of reading this story in that state, when I got to that portion, I was like, what the fuck am I reading? <laughs> this is this this literally is nonsensical. You mean you yourself might have traveled to the 25th century, taken my name, and, and you might actually be me? Or perhaps 
doing one of your trips to the past <laughs> who became dr doom who could be the same man living in two different ages <laughs> if we're both the same man how can we coexist in the same moment in eternity <laughs> yes dude what the f <laughs> indeed Okay, so anyway, I'm sorry for uh, hijacking your recap for oh, a moment no. there. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and get back into it. No, see, unfortunately, and I'm just going to state it right now. Right. Other than this bit between Rama Tut and Doom, there's really not much to this story. There really isn't. You know, it's no. as as far as Fantastic Four stories go, it's the FF getting roped into going to Latveria rather to the Latvian consulate where Reed is to be awarded a scientific fellowship. But of course, it's all just a ruse to get them there and for Doom to mess with them. But there's an interesting note. Before they go, Johnny's sorting through the letters they get, and it's revealed that Reed is doing work for NASA. Yes. Yes. Which, which I love because think about it. If you had in reality a guy doing the super scientific crap that people like Reed Richards and Tony Stark are doing. This, this world would be a utopia, <laughs> but so much for that. Right. So anyway, we, we end up at the Latvian consulate where we have all sorts of wacky encounters, the thing dancing with a woman, Johnny flirting with a girl who turns out to just give him a little bit of information, but then Johnny runs into Ben, who, for no adequately explained reason, punches him in the face. So Johnny goes looking for Ben. Of course, it's not Ben. It's, you know, robot or whatever. And um, I think hallucination. It's, it's from the bunch, berry. They, they made them all drink this hypnotic berry drink. Right. But the thing that I don't get is if, if it's a hallucination, how does Johnny feel being punched in the face? Right. Mm. <laughs> okay we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over that right so let's just skip straight to where doom engages the ff in combat they engage in combat for a while but the real purpose of this is doom wants to determine who is the most intelligent him or richards and when it finally gets down to that reed hooks the two the only way they can determine this is reed has to hook the two of them up to the encephalo gun which has two probes that come off of it and one attaches to either either a probe attaches to the forehead of the people involved now once this once the loser is determined the loser will vanish for good and in doom's perception reed vanishes and that's great. Doom just suddenly throws his cloak around himself and walks out, convinced that he is the victor. When in actuality, as Reed puts it, the illusion I created in his mind was it's an illusion of victory. He is convinced that he defeated me. But Reed, how long will that illusion last? The kid's right. It'll wear off. Someday and he'll be back. Let me tackle him now before he gets away. No, Ben would serve no purpose. We're not murderers. We can't kill him. And he's committed no crime for which he can be arrested. As head of a foreign nation, no matter how small, he is entitled to diplomatic immunity in this country. All we can do is hope that he never returns. But if he does, we must stand ready to battle him again. And that's pretty much it. I mean, there's really, 
it's it's a very slight story. This is not Spider-Man Annual Number One. The real meat of this is the origin of Doctor Doom. Yeah, I. But I mean, this is. I feel like this is. You know, I wouldn't run down this story too much. I feel like it's it's a fascinating story. You know, in that this idea of like what does he ultimately want, and can we defeat him by giving it to him and sending him away? And I feel like, well, first of all, let me jump back and say I love the woman that. Yes, ben Grimm is dancing with. I have, <laughs> I have, I have wondered whether that is supposed to be Jack Kirby's wife. <laughs> um, that's, not rather... that's not what Roz looked like. No, okay, all right. No. she is rather zafting, uh, but uh, she is, uh, she is absolutely wonderful. But I think that it's interesting. But you get this interesting development based on the first half of the book, in that they're like, oh, we can't arrest him because he has diplomatic immunity. You've, they've been caught in this trap with Dr. Doom stories for the last 30 issues, where they basically have to kill him off at the end of every issue. They keep having these storylines in which Dr. Doom goes hurtling off into voids. We've seen him hurtling off into void after yes. void after void, because they're like, well, this is this you know, extremely powerful person who exists for nothing else other than to kill us. And so either he kills us or we kill him or he seemingly dies because he has shrunk down to nothingness or been hurled off into space or been hurled off into another dimension or we've had a million different variations of this and now suddenly we get to this thing of like oh no we can't kill him he has something to do all day he's got a country to run and he cannot be arrested in america and it's like okay you have finally made this character work to a certain extent this is a this is now a character for the agents. This is now a character who is renewable, who can be, you know, who can sustain story after story after story without having to seemingly have all or nothing wipeouts at the end. And I think it's good. I think that the diplomatic community angle is a great element to add to his character, which is added with this story. Yes, you're absolutely right. This is the story where they really fully do establish doom. You're absolutely right. And I, I apologize for my <laughs> no, no need. Yes, you, you you must stand there in your wrongness and be wrong. Let <laughs> <laughs> me to say before we wrap up, I find it really interesting that in the final panel, Reed says, and still I can't help feeling pity for him. Something terribly tragic must have occurred in his life to make him as he is. Perhaps if we could ever learn more of his past. So it's, you know, it's interesting here that it's ironic he would say that, given that we have just learned so many interesting things about his past and how something terribly tragic did happen in his past to make him this way. But I just feel like this story, this annual, as great as this annual is, it would have been so much better if they had learned it. If they had also oh, yeah. somehow heard all of this story about his past and that now maybe that that informs how good Reed is now at figuring out how to defeat him with the encephalo gun because he's like oh now i understand doom's psychology and now i understand this is the way to defeat him i just think this would have been as strong as this issue is it would have been much stronger if maybe they heard it from boris or maybe they found out uh. because reed had researched it and it's like hey everybody i've researched doom's past let me tell you what i've learned of doom's past and then this had all been one big story yeah, or even if they'd done it as two different stories, but somehow we some got some indication that uh, the Fantastic Four had been able to learn the same information at one point. Yeah, that is. Uh, I think I do. I think you're right. I think that would have been. I think that is a missed opportunity, as you say. Yeah, I mean, at what point do they learn it? Presumably, at some point in the future, they learn this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe now we're still reading Fantastic Four comics in 2022, and they still have no idea what the origin of Doctor Doom is. Or, or, we, or we, or it just happened off panel. 
(laughs) There are several charming moments in here for me. Uh, I love, uh, you know, when Sue hallucinates that Reed is making out with this Latvian Baroness or whatever. And Reed says, love you. You're lucky I even tolerate you. I believe in playing the field, Blondie, and don't forget it, <laughs> which I, I find just hilarious. It's, it, it's hilarious, but that's also when reading that story as a kid, I never bought it because, first of all, yes, Reed has his moments of assholeism, but, but he's never like that. Right. Sue should know better. It, it just seemed gratuitous for the sake of shock value more than anything else. Sure. I didn't buy it. Well, but on- don't worry, but she's not being a fool. We know because she says, Reed Pierce, I've been such a fool. And he explains she's not a fool. He says, not a fool, Sue, merely a female. You couldn't have reacted differently. Oh, so it's like, geez. okay, so, so women, <laughs> when women are told that by men that they are dating, they become completely irrational. Now, this is different from men. When a man is mocked and humiliated by a woman who is cheating on him, men handle it totally fine. We are... <laughs> Famously <laughs> rational and cool with that. <laughs> this, that, that sort of that sort of dialogue is one of the things that I find to be one of the big stumbling blocks in getting my female friends who they're comics readers and they love the Marvel movies and things like that. But the ones who are hardcore old school comics readers, a lot of them haven't read the early Marvel Universe stuff. And I warn them when they go back to read it that there's going to be a lot of sexist stuff that is oh, yeah. not going to sit well with them. And they're like, oh, what are you talking about? We can handle it. And then they come back to me. It's like, dude, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you get there's a lot of that in, in the Fantastic Four, but especially in the Giant Man and the Wasp story. <laughs> I know. Yes. What on earth? <laughs> Absolutely. If you've never read early Marvel Universe stuff, the sexism will make you crazy. Sure, it's a, it's a product of its time and can be accepted as such. But when, when you read it now, it is agonizing. <laughs> now, see, I never have a big problem with it when it is clearly read as being a jerk, read as being someone who thinks very little read of women. And I'm like, that is an acceptable characterization. Not acceptable, but that is a believable characterization of this character. He is not shown as being, you know, the comic is not necessarily endorsing his toxicity. In fact, it's sort of condemning his toxicity, which is fine and in some ways admirable to go ahead and condemn. But you know, occasionally you'll get these moments in these issues where then the woman will say, oh, you're right. Never pay attention to what women say. You know, we're just liberty gibbets. And it's like, uh, those are the moments that kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because the the way I see it, and I think I've said this before on here, that Reed, you know, the Fantastic Four is like a family. I think everybody understands that. And that Reed is the dad, and he is definitely a 50s decade dad. But Sue is a 60s decade woman. And so a lot of this is just the tension between the changes between the 50s and the 60s. Uh, but yeah, when when the women are just like, oh, you're right, that's when that's when it does. Yeah, you're right. That's when it goes off the rails. Uh, I do want to say on the top of page 16, I love a couple of these panels here. Uh, the first panel on page 16, uh, Dr. Doom, it looks like he's just about to win. And he says, and so, okay, maybe I should do my Schwarzenegger impression. Uh, and so, my final and complete victory is almost within my grasp. But what does it mean? 
will I be any happier once I've defeated the Fantastic Four? And, you know, I find that just hilarious that he's suddenly like, why am I doing this? Is this is this really going to make me happy? What's what's going to be really fulfilling in my life? That's one of the things that attracted me to the Fantastic Four in the first place, because I first saw the Fantastic Four on the old Hanna-Barbera cartoon when I was sure. about four years old, and I thought they were interesting. But my real first exposure to the Fantastic Four was Marvel Treasury Edition number two, which reprinted Fantastic uh-huh. Four issues 6, 11, and a re-edited version of the Galactus saga. So imagine being nine years old, and that's your first wow. exposure to the epic. Wow. In there, we got that wonderful story with Dr. Doom and the Submariner, which is one of my favorites to this day. Big Namor fan here. But the point I was going to make is the Fantastic Four always seemed like a dysfunctional family, which is something I knew a lot about. We're not getting into that. <laughs> but but yes, all of the points that you made about the dynamic of Reed and Sue and just as a family and all of that. But with Dr. Doom doing that moment of introspection, that's the kind of thing that you'd get in a lot of the early Fantastic Four. And that's why I like them. It's, yeah. It wasn't just a bash them up book. And also, if you think about it, the Fantastic Four, they're superheroes by default. They're not out there fighting crime or anything. They're scientific explorers. And if, if shit goes down, they deal with it. And that's it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. their, their first objective is to explore. Okay. And th- then you get their family drama and whatever else. And any, any, any threats that happen, that's all ancillary. And while it's interesting to read, the real meat of the Fantastic Four is who and what they are as people. And then when they allow you to get to know the villains the way we know Dr. Doom, it's the same thing. And it's, we are fascinated by the human drama that they generate. Yeah, mm-hmm. I endorse that wholeheartedly. This panel right after the one where he's wondering if he will be any happier, there is a foreground image of <laughs> What a, on earth is that? It's, it's a, it's, I think it's a lamp. <laughs> That has, but it's shaped like a monster hand and the flames of the lamp are coming out of the tips of the fingers on that thing. And it's just sort of a, oh yeah, this is just something in Doom's room in the embassy. <laughs> Remember, this is in the embassy no, I can, too. I can, right? I, can, I, can tell you, I, can, I can tell you exactly what that is. Yeah. Back in, back in the days, because one of my many interests is studying the occult. And back in the days... When in the early days of occult shops, you could buy you could buy a candle that would be called the Hand of Glory, and it Whoa. was a, it was a wax life size hand and slight portion of a forearm, and the tip of each finger had a wick, and so you'd light that, and that was the candle, the the Hand of Glory. Wow. Okay. Well, there we you go. We have brought on the right guest. We have brought on the right guest. <laughs> in so many ways today oh my god you have had so much good Very stuff to though. add today in so many areas but i had no idea that we'd brought on the right guests in terms of knowing what that occult lamp is well bear, <laughs> bear in mind that if you decide to look up the the hand of glory you'll find various uses for it but if you see a burning if you see a candle that looks like a hand with with wicks for the fingers that's that's also the hand of glory you ever see that movie the wicker man oh yeah the original Remember when Sergeant Howie wakes up and he sees that hand? 
No, I don't. See it again and you'll see the hand of glory. Okay. Wow. Anyway, that's awesome. Okay. That is amazing that you know that. <laughs> well, I think that we are pretty much done here for this, but Steve Bunch, thank you so much for agreeing to be on here with us. Um, I, I think, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, Matt, when I say that we would be happy to have you back anytime. Oh, oh my God. That'd be amazing. Be We'd love to have you back. <laughs> I, I would be absolutely happy to come back anytime. Just, you know, situation providing. Right. I absolutely had a blast doing this and please let us do it again. All right. Great. That is great. Well, you are an amazing person. This is, you've had such a, you've had such great career in comics that is all coming out here, all bursting forth. It's just fantastic. And we have barely scratched the surface because clearly you've got a lot more going on that, uh, <laughs> that uh, we're not getting to, but this is, these are such great comics and these are two of Marvel's all-time best comics. I would say these are two of the oh, two greatest yes. single issues that Marvel ever produced. And I'm so glad we got to have a great guest to talk with them. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's been tons of fun. And yes, we, uh, we, I, I think we will definitely be having you back at some point in the future uh, for one thing or another. So uh, any other further thoughts any of you have to say to podcast land before we sign off for this episode? Nope. <laughs> the one thing I have to say is people speaking as a guy who grew up in the fandom community, I just want to say people, when you go online or when you go on podcasts or whatever, be civil, you know, <laughs> yeah. we don't have to be savages and don't hate absolutely everything for no adequately explained reason. If it makes you feel big to go online and act like a schmuck, that's on you. Okay. <laughs> the rest of us, we're here because we're a community that loves and appreciates this stuff. Yes, we can disagree on things, but we keep it civil and we stay friendly about it. Got me? This is a big black dude. Don't make me come over here and with a broken coke <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent point thank you for making that point yeah it's i, I that's one thing we try to do here at marvel Rear club is to not get angry about anything and not not weaponize our nostalgia in any way yes see bunch where can we find you on the internet where should we um, let people find you before we let you go well i have two blogs that are my main blogs there's the vault of bunchness so you can look that up <laughs> And uh, then there's a blog that, that I do that's nothing but movie reviews, Cinemiscreant, which is spelled C-I-N-E hyphen miscreant. Check those out. You'll see what you can find. I'm on Facebook as Sunny, S-U-N-N-Y, Chiba, C-H-E-E-B-A. So give that a shot. I have two books that you guys might want to check out. Mm -hmm. First of all, there's a big coffee table book, hardcover the Art of Amanda Connor, okay, which wow. is cool. quite spectacular. And um, it's the one, there are a bunch of books of, out of Amanda's work, but this one, the cover is an illustration of Painkiller Jane. That's the one you want. And then there was uh, How to Draw DC Comics Heroes and Villains, which I, I did the text on that one and with artwork by Scott Koblish. Oh, so cool. check that out. It's it's a fun book and it's 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 a good one to give to your kids and it comes with built-in comics board level paper so you your kids can draw in that and it's fantastic. Nice, that's awesome. Yeah. Um. Okay. So thanks a lot. Uh, it's been tons of fun and uh, let's go ahead and say I, I'm just gonna say uh, to everybody out there once again thanks for listening. 
please rate and review us wherever you find us and um, stay safe out there. Okay. Bye, Steve Punch. Thanks for visiting. Woo! <laughs> Back at you. Take care. Okay. Bye. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.